It's been good to sing God's praises together. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to go to the letter from Paul to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 3 to 7. 3 to 7, for our visitors, again, I hope that you will feel welcome, that we want to make much of Christ. I've started this series, it's only my fourth Sunday here at Calvary, and just falling in love with the people and doing life together. It's been a great, great four weeks. And we're looking at the idea that we are the church, that we are the church. And so I want to make sure that we remember we didn't come to church today. We are the church. We are the church. We gathered as a church. You didn't come to church. We gathered as the church. And that's very important. It's a subtle distinction, but it's very important. We're looking at the idea of how do we, the church, the people of God, live life in reality? How do we live it? How, do, how, do we, how is it more than just what we do here on a Sunday morning? How is we functioning as a church something that we take with us inside of our homes, to our family gatherings, to our workplace, to the classroom, to when we're out in recreation and all the things that we do in life, the way we react to life and the way we react to each other? And so last week I started with this question of the church What is it supposed to look like? What does loving one another and being unified with each other in real life look like? And the reality is, if I gave you all a piece of paper and asked you to write that down, we'd probably come up with a lot of different expressions of that. And the truth is, when we say it, it sounds so good to say these things. I enjoy saying that we're supposed to love each other and we're supposed to be unified together. But even as I say the words, as they come out of my mouth, I can't help but think, but come on. Daniel just prayed it. We're really messed up. (laughs) We've made a lot of mistakes. We get off course. We fail. Let's be honest. We get on each other's nerves. We do. We fail each other. And so, How in the world can a gathering of flawed people show the world, or for us at Calvary, at least St. John's, hey, we are truly Christians. Jesus really is God and he is our God when we're all this messed up. Because the truth is, the song we just finished with rings in my mind so many times through the run of a day. In fact, as you get to know me, and for those of you that have connected with me on Facebook, you have seen the words of this song, the last verse of it, on my Facebook status many, many, many times, which is this, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Do you not feel that sometimes even daily? When you know how you're supposed to live, when you know what the right answer is, and yet you still choose to do what you shouldn't do. But aren't you so glad that the song doesn't end there? Wouldn't religion be, or Christianity be, I actually think religion is, but wouldn't Christianity be one of the most depressing things if all we could talk about is how bad we are? But the good news of the gospel is in spite of how bad we are, it's how awesome Jesus is. And I love the writer of this song because he says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And he doesn't stop there. He applies the gospel to himself. He says, take my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it in thy courts above. Now, don't miss the subtlety here. You see, 
we admit we can't, and then as Daniel prayed, we go to the one who can. I can't, but Lord, you can. So, how do you change your mind? How do you change your heart? How do you change your actions? Well, quite simply, you go back to the life of Christ. You reflect upon the death of Christ. You hope in the resurrection of the Christ. You have the confidence of the ascension of Christ. In other words, how often this week, in the past seven days, did you and I re-preach and reapply the gospel to our lives? How often did you think about it? The older I get and the more into a relationship with Christ I get, there is this one verse that just resonates with me. And since I am an extrovert and I'm a doer and I love to just be busy, I love to be occupied, I'm the kind of guy that even in my office I like to have music going, I'm easily distracted, I love that big bay window, but there's lots of cars and trucks and things that fly by or go down and shiny things hit it. And I'm like uh, the dog in Up, you know, squirrel! I'm, I'm like that, you know, I'm easily distracted, you know. But isn't it Nice to know that Paul says in Philippians, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are honest. He lists off eight things and he gets to the bottom of that verse and he says, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. How often this week did you think about how great Christ is in your life, regardless of how your life's circumstances were going? See, I think the pandemic of our time in the Western culture of a fast food world and a 30-minute sitcom and a 60-minute drama, where even when someone director makes a movie that's more than 120 minutes, that gets criticized. We live in this instantaneous world. The idea that we would stop and think is unheard of. And so we approach life, every part of life, we approach our marriages and our friendships. We approach parenting. We approach the conflicts at work. We approach everything as if it can be instantaneously fixed, never looking over our shoulder and realizing it took weeks, months, or even years to get where we're at. So how do we as a church apply the gospel to our lives each and every day if we're not thinking about it? This is the challenge that Paul gives to Timothy. And I want us all to understand that the key to changing among us is this. The key to, in how we think about ourselves and how we think about each other, the key in how we see this city and the sinners that make up this city is how we see Christ. It's how you see Jesus. Because when I asked the Lord this past week when I drove up to Signal Hill again, I've been trying to do that once a week just to pray over the city, but I'm trying to realize this city has sprawled out so much, I'm trying to find other lookout points where I can see other parts of the city. But when I get up there and I look down over the parts of the city that I can see, I'm so tempted to get up there and pray these grand prayers. Lord, say And it sounds so wonderful. And then I'm reminded of G.K. Chesterton when he was alive and a paper wanted to know what was wrong with the world and why was all this chaos and why was all this war. And people were writing in with all of their reasons. And G.K. Chesterton wrote in and he said, I apologize, I'm the problem. Me. You see, I cannot pray for this city effectively if I think I'm okay and the city isn't and it needs fixing. The way to find a heart, the way to reapply the gospel to your life, the way to think in terms of the gospel is to realize, no, I'm part of the problem too and we all collectively need Jesus. Every day. Every day. 
And so how do we do that? Well, Paul challenges Timothy, who he instructs him to challenge the Ephesian church in 1 Timothy over and over and over again. And you're going to get sick of me saying this, which is guard the gospel. Guard the gospel. Guard the gospel. What, what does that mean? All right, so since I'm a bit long-winded and I am watching that clock and I'm going to quit somewhere within a reasonable time, so just in case I run out of time. Well, let me be honest. When I run out of time, not in case I run out of time, I want to give you the entire sermon in a sentence, and I'm going to try and do this all the time. And please pray for me. I'm, I'm, I'm ruined. I, I had this IT guy that would do all kinds of PowerPoints for me because I am completely computer illiterate. And uh, Daniel knows I tried to make this one slide last week, and it took me about two and a half hours to build it. And then I brought Steve Da and Daniel in to look at it, and they both looked at it and looked at each other. And without saying a word to me, I knew it was completely garbage. All right? So I really am going to try and work hard at learning how to do this because I want you to see this. But if you take notes, here's the entire sermon. Here is 1 Timothy chapter 1, 3 to 7, this entire sermon in one sentence. Here it is. Right doctrine, right doctrine, always leads to right living always without exception right doctrine always leads to right living which always results in right relationships always always that is this passage in a sentence right doctrine always leads to right living which always results in right relationship, which, by the way, we're called to guard. We're called to guard it and always guard it well. And so I want you to notice in 1 Timothy chapter 1, you'll notice in verse 1 and 2, Timothy gets this wonderful greeting from Paul where he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. But you'll notice something is missing. Because as soon as he leaves verse 2, he goes right into verse 3, as I urged you. Now, if you know anything about Paul's writings, or if you've read any of the 13 letters that he wrote, except this letter and one other, he always gives a greeting, and then he kind of gives something positive. It's like Peter believed in giving you a compliment before he gave you the you know, before he smacked you, all right? He thought, oh, you do something nice. Now, let me tell you about everything you've done wrong. Um, but there's two letters where he doesn't do that, Galatians and First Timothy. And in both cases, what he is going to address is a group of people or a leadership that is abandoned or watered down or worse, apostatized the gospel. And so Peter, or sorry, Paul doesn't even give Timothy a compliment. He doesn't say anything nice about the Ephesian church. He just jumps right in, and this is what he says in verse 3. Notice he says, As I urged you, when I was going to Macedonia to remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any other doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And then you can almost feel Paul change. He goes, Timothy, the aim of our charge is love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, what he has just said in verse 5, have wandered away into vain discussions desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying 
So in other words, notice what he, he says. These people don't even understand what they're saying or the things about which they make conf- confident assertions. So even when they talk confidently, they're doing that to make up or to compensate for the fact they have no idea what they're talking about. And you've all experienced those kind of people. I remember growing up in school and we had spelling bees. And one of my favorite memories of being in elementary was this one little girl, her name was Krista Littman, and she got up in the spelling bee and she came up to the mic and she was just so proud. I mean, she just, shoulders were back and her word was cat. And she went, cat, G-E-T, cat. And then the bell rung and she she couldn't understand why the bell rung because she was convinced that she had said it right. But she's totally misspelled the word. And this is what Paul is talking about. These people don't, not is it that they don't know what they're talking about. They even confidently say things and they have no idea what they're saying. And they're doing that to compensate. And so this morning I want to walk you through this. So in verse 3, where Paul says, Timothy, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any other doctrine. Again, if you take notes, my first point that I want us to take in this is there's this loving charge to Timothy to stay and confront. There's a loving charge. That word charge is in there. It's an important word. So Paul gives Timothy first this loving charge to stay in Ephesus and to confront. Now you've got to realize that this Ephesian church as I said last week, was likely one of the first mega churches of the church age. It has an incredible history. And if you want to learn about it, I encourage you to read through the book of Acts. Scholars and historians tell us that the Ephesian church was likely planted, if not pre-planted, by a couple named Aquila and Priscilla. They were a wonderful couple that loved each other and complimented each other. And I will tell you, if you ever want to see what marriage and working in ministry looks like, I I challenge you to study Aquila and Priscilla through the New Testament. And here this couple, they go in, and remember Paul talks about in Corinthians, some have planted and some have watered, but God gave the increase. And so the church was likely planted by Aquila and Priscilla. But then Paul shows up at Ephesus, and we know from Acts that he spends about between two, two and a half, and three years there, and the gospel literally explodes. I mean, it literally blows up in the city. So many people are getting saved and coming to Jesus Christ. So many lives are changed in Ephesus that it literally turned the unions against each other. There you go, Derek. Turned the unions right on top of themselves. In fact, if you read it, it is amazing because there was the temple to Artemis, otherwise known as Diana, and uh, Alexander the, the silversmith was in there, and they used to make these little silver, what I call Diana dolls. And it was a massive commerce, and people would buy these as their little statues. And this was a thriving, thriving commerce and just a thriving paganism. But the gospel so exploded, so many people were getting saved and their lives being changed that it threatened to bankrupt the silversmith industry. So much so that a riot was, was took place and they had to get Paul out of the city and they gathered in the main square and they worried that Rome would come in because there was so much chaos. Now for you to appreciate what that's like, imagine if so many people were getting saved in Las Vegas that gambling stopped. That would make CNN. That would make CNN. If you study world history at all in our context of our modern history, imagine so many people coming to Christ in Manila that there was no more sex trafficking, no more prostitution, no more sex trade in that city, which is known for it. It was a city known for it. Not only this, 
But Ephesus was a city that was on all the major trade routes for all of Rome and Asia. And it was a beacon. If you study antiquity, it had a beautiful harbor. And it became a missions mecca. Through the church at Ephesus, all of Asia was influenced, as I titled it. I imagine this beautiful cathedral somewhere called the First Evangelical Church of Ephesus. All right? Now, I don't know about you, but as I was studying this, it kind of reminds me of St. John's. It does. Where God has blessed this province with all kinds of natural resources, and Lord willing, as the price of oil goes up, and all these things, we see all kinds of people from all around the world coming, and, and Newfoundlanders are everywhere around the world. Imagine if God wills and we obey that the church of God was so built up in this city that the churches of this city so proclaimed the gospel and was so used of God to see countless souls come to Christ that we literally impacted an entire world with the gospel. Wouldn't that be amazing? W- wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah, yeah, there you go, yeah. Yeah. Just so you know, that's what I pray about. That's what I'm praying. I'm praying God will do that with us. All right? But to understand 1 Timothy, you need to understand the context of this amazing church. You see, five years earlier from this letter, Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem. He had spent a couple of years in prison in Caesarea. Now he's appealed to Caesar, so so he's on his way to Rome. While he's on the way to Rome, he stops in a seaport there and he has some time and he calls for the leadership, the eldership of the church of Rome to come and that's in Acts chapter 20. And in Acts chapter 20, Paul tells this church, this group of leaders, I have loved you and I have not ceased night or day in tears to present the gospel to you and I have preached the gospel to you and I have just tried to point you to the gospel and then he gives them this warning to the elders, the leadership, he says, now listen guys, I'm warning you Watch, and notice what he says, watch yourselves and the flock. Because he says there's going to come a time when there's going to be guys that rise up among you as wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, I don't know if these guys got it, because we know in Acts chapter 20, they wept, and they they all fell on Paul's neck, and because Paul said they were never going to see his face again, and there was a lot of emotion. And maybe these guys walking back said, you know what? We're going to be about the gospel. We are going to do what Paul told us, and we're going to be about the gospel. And five years later, five years later, Paul writes 1 Timothy about certain persons who are now involved in vain discussions and myths and genealogies and have wandered from the truth and all of these things. And so Timothy is sent by Paul, or sorry, urged of Paul to stay there and finish the job that he had started But let me ask you this. Notice how he says, verse 3, I urge you when I was going to Macedonia. So Paul and Timothy have had an ongoing conversation. At some point, they were together, and Paul told Timothy, I've got to go to Macedonia. You need to stay in Ephesus, and you need to take care of this. But how often when you read these types of words, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons, how often do you associate? Now, be honest with me. How often do you associate love with confrontation? How often do you go, oh yeah, you know, I was confronted today and that was a real loving thing. We don't do it very often. We don't have positive word reinforcement. With the, we don't usually put love and confrontation. In fact, in our world, we would coin the phrase, many people would say that's an oxymoron. 
Those are two words that shouldn't go together, but the Bible says they go together. And in fact, for all of you that are parents, you use loving confrontation every day. If you've got a toddler who's headed towards a hot stove or a hot fireplace or a hot wood stove, you don't go, well, you know what? I really don't want to confront him because I don't want to hurt his feelings. Now, what do you do? Yo, stop it. Don't go there, right? You go and yell and scream or get their attention. You know what? The, uh, the, one of the habits we had as a family before we moved back here, and I can't wait for it to warm up so we can do it again as a family, is we'd always walk around the trail of Signal Hill. And it was really exciting for us when all of our kids were about five, six, seven years or, or older, so we could all do it as a family. But I remember the boys being adventuresome. We'd go around Signal Hill, especially if there was icebergs off there, and we were all together. But every now and then, the boys got it in their hearts and minds to get as close to the edge as they could possibly get. And they thought it was cool to race to the edge as fast as they could possibly get and see who could get there first. Now, Deb and I didn't walk the trail going, oh, yeah, you know, and if they fall over, well, we've got three. No. Debbie would grab me, and that was my sign because I got, you know, my wrists would slowly get in pain. That was my sign. Be a father. Address the boys. Arrest the situation. Confront them. And I did that as an act of love. I did that because I loved my children. And so Paul tells Timothy, as an act of love, I want you to confront these people. He begged him, I urged you. The words carry the idea of forcefully asked. So imagine how this conversation went. Tim, listen to me. This is important. This must be dealt with. We can't ignore this. I have to go, and I know you don't like confrontation, Timothy. I know you're a meek guy. I know you feel unqualified. I know you think this will be tough, but you've got to do this. God is calling you. I'm asking you. This church needs you to. Now, where are we as a church in this? Who of us will so love God and each other that we're going to have these types of conversations with each other. That we'll love each other enough to bring the truth of God's Word into our lives. That we'll speak truth into each other's life. Yes, with patience. Yes, with love. Yes, with grace and mercy. But we'll fight for it. I wish I had the time. I would give you homework this week if as a church. Read Matthew chapter 18, which is all about discipline. But as you read it, remind yourself that what this actually is, is God calling the church to be so desperately in love with each other, so passionately in community together, that we cannot bear the thought of us ever being apart or even one of us falling away. And so we would do whatever it takes to arrest that situation and grab a hold of someone. And only as a complete last resort would we ever part company. And it was only after we had done absolutely everything to rescue the person. Imagine a church like that. Where that's what we were known for. Where that wasn't a red letter day. That wasn't a good old days memory where that was a common occurrence in the church where this city and this neighborhood and everybody around us and everybody that you in fact, uh, influence in your lives would say, I don't know if what they believe is right, but I know one thing about this church. They love and passionately care for each other. They pursue each other and pray for each other. They don't let each other get away from themselves. They go after one another all the time and they beg each other to live life godly. 
what would life look like in this church then? Now notice with me, it's about these certain persons who, by the way, were elders. They were leaders. And being unnamed only means that Paul and Timothy knew exactly who they were talking about. This wasn't, you know what, this wasn't like, I haven't got a clue who's doing it, but go and find out who it is. No, that's those conversations. You've all had them, like, when you're talking, like, you know someone's going to be upset when we do this. And everybody, and when you say that, you know you're both talking about the same person. That certain person, that certain persons. And these were elders. But notice what Timothy's supposed to do. He's to charge them not to teach any doctrine, any other doctrine or different doctrine. Now, the word charge is not like the charge of a graduation address where the the valedictorian gets up and says, I'm going to give my charge to the graduates. No, this is a charge of command. This is confrontation. Paul is telling Timothy, shock them, jolt them. It meant to arrest a situation. He was supposed to challenge the leaders to stop teaching and instructing and telling and guiding and inviting others to something other than what was already known as the truth. Paul talked about this in Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the church at Corinth was actually doubting the resurrection unto life. And Paul writes them, and I love what he says. You can almost hear him in his bewilderment. He's like, "You, you are wondering about the resurrection unto life? All I know is what I've preached to you from the first day until now that Jesus Christ lived according to the Scriptures, that He died for our sins according to the Scripture, and He was raised again the third day according to the Scriptures. He just keeps going back to the Gospel. And He's bewildered. In, in, in Galatians, in the very first chapter, He gives the greeting. He doesn't give them any compliments. He says, I am at a loss. Who in the world has tricked you, has bewildered you to think that you've got to add to the Gospel or you've got to alter the Gospel or you've got to deepen down into the Gospel? No, he said, guys, it's just the Gospel. In Acts chapter 2, we find out that it's often called the Apostles' Doctrine. And they were together, right, in breaking of bread and in fellowship and in prayer and the Apostles' Doctrine. By the time you get to Acts chapter 12 and you start, or sorry, chapter 4 and you get on, it's sometimes called the way. But all along, there's this loving confrontation. Stay and confront. But when you get into verse 4, there's a loving charge to expose. That's the second thing. In verse 4, he says, after he says, teach no other doctrine, then he exposes what this different doctrine is. In verse 4, to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, I want you to understand what that means. He is addressing leadership, elders. Uh, John MacArthur does a great job of summarizing why we know they're elders because, first of all, they were presumed to be teachers. We see it in verse 7. Secondly, it was a role reserved for elders because we're going to read about it in chapter 3, verse 2 and chapter 5, verse 17. Secondly, Paul, not the church, excommunicated Hymenaeus and Alexander who we'll read about in the next couple of weeks. And that implies that they were in positions of power and the congregation couldn't deal with them. Can you imagine how dysfunctional a church has to be when you have leaders and there's no one there that can arrest the situation? When you're all together doing life and you know something's wrong and no one will step up and deal with it. Thirdly, the qualifications of an elder are given in great detail in chapter 3, giving those 
implies that unqualified men were serving that office and that Timothy needed to see them replaced. And so never lose Timothy's mandate. He was to go in and get rid of bad leadership and equip the church to identify proper leadership and put that in place. How many of you would sign up for that? Oh, yeah, send me to any church. I'll handle that. But to do it as an act of love, to do it and go in there and be desperate for it. And then finally, Paul stresses that sinning elders are to be publicly disciplined publicly disciplined in chapter 5 verses 19 to 20 so timothy must deal with these certain persons and here's a double challenge to a church this church should follow their leaders and i would say this to calvary baptist for myself and the other elders of this church as a healthy church as a church that functions right you should be a church that only follows your leaders only as we follow jesus christ and truly preach the word of god only as we're being about the gospel. And so how do you know if leadership starts straying off target? This is our answer right here. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. They start to talk and preach and act like there's something deeper to find. As if they, they stop challenging themselves and the church to know God, to follow and trust what is obviously our calling. James deals with this, and Peter, James says, don't be quick to be a teacher. Peter talks about it. John deals with it with Theotrephes. Jude deals with it in his little letter. Revelation deals with it in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. But notice the words used by Paul in verse 4. He says they chase after myths and genealogies and speculations. Now this is where I have to be careful because I can really get on a hobby horse. Because when I read this and I think about my age, especially say from 1988 to 2015, the catchword thing to study in the evangelical church has been prophecy. It has been to get to know prophecy. Go to the Religious Book and Bible House, look at CBD. You will find all kinds of books written by all kinds of people who are going to tell you all kinds of things about we're in the last days and what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. And everybody from Hillary Clinton to Hitler has been the beast or the harlot of Babylon or whatever, whatever. There's books written about 666 and one just recently, two years ago in 2012, somebody wrote a book saying they had decoded the Bible. They had figured out all the number stuff of the Bible. And you know what I say to that? That's what I say to all of that. I once had a dear friend of mine say to me, Steve, listen, you've got to preach more prophecy. 25% of the Bible is prophecy. Well, that means 75% of the Bible is admonition. And we have to watch this. And so the pastors and preachers and leaders that want to start talking to you about prophecy as if they're going to delve into the, un, uh, the mundane and they're going to start arguing all these nuances and they're going to start building do's and don'ts and challenges and they're going to start making it seem like there's something deeper. First of all, listen, there's nothing new under the sun. Any preacher that stands in front of you says, I've discovered something new. All right, start to have secret meetings to get rid of him. All right? Because there's nothing new under the sun. And second, if we will focus ourselves on knowing and obeying God and trusting God with what is obvious in Scripture, instead of spending massive amounts of money and time and reading about conspiracy theories and obscure future events, even arguing about our preferences and distinctives, instead of loving like Jesus, thinking like Jesus, and treating others like Jesus, if you don't do that, you've lost the gospel. And we need to confront ourselves. We need to confront each other. And so Paul gives Timothy and us the real aim of the gospel in verse 5. So the third point is this, the loving charge to defend. All right? So Timothy is charged 
to stay and confront. It's an act of love. He's charged to expose anything or any time anything competes with the gospel, preaching the gospel to yourselves, applying the gospel to our lives. May everything about us, our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy should be the gospel. And then he says, well, let me show you what this looks like in verse 5 because there's a loving charge to defend. And he says, Timothy, the aim of our charge is love. And then he puts it into three categories. It's love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now look at the verse again. The aim of our charge. Now the word charge is the same word that he used with charging the certain persons. We're supposed to be after each other, confront each other, challenge each other, point each other as much towards our charge as we are to ask other people to come back to it, which is love. A love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So what does that look like? John MacArthur said this, It is essential that believers love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now many of you in here know the verse, and you know what I'm supposed to say next, right? And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Okay. Now, clear your heads. Let me read it again. And ask yourselves, is this you? Do you love God with all your heart? All of your heart. That means in any competition, God wins for a spouse, for children, for a job, for possessions, for the bank account, the retirement plan, that vacation. There is nothing in your life that you wouldn't give to Christ simply to have Christ. Do you love Him with all of your soul, with all of your mind? Because the reality is, the only way you're ever going to do the second one is if you do the first one. You will never love people like yourself. You won't love your spouse. You won't even love your kids. And let alone will you love the people that get on your nerves at church or the demanding boss who never understands or that annoying, annoying co-worker that always takes credit for everything you do right and always sells you up the creek whenever you do something wrong or they do something wrong. That, that employer or that employee that just never gets it. You all know, you will never do this. And you know what the idea here is? Not that you're going to arrive to the conclusion, oh yeah, I do this. No, you're supposed to arrive to the conclusion, oh God, I need you. I need you. I need more of you. John added, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So please, church, just make sure you always get this distinctive. God is love. God is not loving because He does nice things. He is love. That means everything He does is loving. See, you and I are called to be loving, but God is love. So whenever anything goes wrong in your life or whenever you feel like maybe God is disciplining you, He's not ticked and He's not not loving you. In fact, He is loving you because if you have a relationship with God, everything He does is an act of love. He is love. And you, have to, you and I have to think that way. Now, this isn't easy. Nor is it something many of us or even many of us or any of us have truly grasped yet. And for us to do this, we have to stop making excuses. 
And I have a burden in this. Men, we have to stop saying things like, well, I don't read. I don't know what that means when men say that to me. I don't read. I want to ask them all the time, are you illiterate? It's not I don't read, it's I won't read. Men, we should read. We must read. We must read God's Word. We must be in God's Word. Men who say, I don't, I don't read or, you know, I, I struggle with prayer and I don't study. And I used to memorize verses in Sunday school, but I don't do it anymore. And, and you know, I want to lead, but I don't lead. What does that mean? We have to stop sitting back and being busy about everything that we don't take the role of spiritual leader in our homes. And ladies, it means stop reading and reading and knowing a bunch of stuff but never applying it. Stop using the Bible as a weapon to manipulate because that's just as sinful before God as not knowing it at all. As one man wrote, and I read it this week, we need our theology to be not only true but spirit-filled and fruitful. We have often loved what we've learned about God more than God Himself. And that's what the problem is. That's when you get off the gospel. And so we need to love with a pure heart. We need to love with a good conscience. And we need to love with a sincere faith. And you know what? I'm going to be a man of my word. I'm out of time. So I'm going to bring this to an application. Then we're going to pick this up next week. So let me ask you this, church. How much do you love Jesus and His gospel? No, I mean it. Come on. Engage with this. Now, how much do you love Jesus and his gospel? Or how much of your life have you been looking for something deeper and never feeling satisfied? How much has the gospel so changed you and satisfied you that you can't get enough of it? My favorite passage in the Bible, my favorite pericope of the Bible is the Samaritan woman by the well. I love this because she's messed up. She's damaged goods. And she's there trying to get water. And Jesus comes, a Jew, and speaks to her. And she's unveiled. And she's Samaritan. He breaks every taboo to have a relationship with her. And she can't believe it. I mean, really, the parallel to today would be like me stopping on the corner to address a prostitute and ask her if, the, if she needs a meal. I mean, it, it just broke every social taboo of Jesus' day. And what does he say? If you would drink of the water I offer you, you would never thirst again. And I need you to understand what he's not saying. He's not saying, if you would believe what I have to say, you'd be like, yay, and then go on, relive your merry life, and go, well, I'm never thirsty for anything again. But remember what Daniel read in Psalm 42? As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs after you. What he is saying is, what I have to offer you will so satisfy you, will so amaze you, that you won't want anything else but this. You will long for it. You will reorganize your life for it. You will, you will put other things aside for it. Once you taste how wonderful I am, you can't or do you want anything else. That's what I'm asking. Are you and I so excited about Christ that He satisfies you and gives you joy like that? And if you're suffering through a time of darkness or valley, you're like, you know what? I need to run to Jesus. I don't understand why in church when we struggle and fail, the first thing we do is run from Jesus and from church. When the safest place to run is to Jesus and to church. Study your Bible. Every time a human being runs from God, it never works well. Ever. So are we a church desperate for renewal and revival? You cannot get to know God personally and then just live any way at all. 
To know Jesus is to be changed by him. To know him is to be amazed by him. To know Jesus is to be controlled by him. And so I end with this prayer. Give us, O Lord, open minds to seek your will, soft hearts to receive your will, ready hands to do your will, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Will we be a church so in love with the gospel we dare to confront each other in love? Are we so in love with the gospel that we dare to expose anything, anything that at all puts the gospel at risk? And are we so in love with the gospel that we pursue each other with a love that's from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith? And next week, as God provides, and the weatherman is wrong and we don't get the 60 centimeters of snow they're calling for in the next seven days, we will gather together and look at that as a family. But how are you doing? What's God saying? We're going to sing, Come Thou Fount Again. And I pray that as you get to that last verse, you will be able to do business with God. Let's close in prayer as we get ready to sing. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to address my family. Father, these men and women here are who are believers in you, are sons and daughters of God. So they're my brothers and sisters, and we're part of the family of God. And Lord, I don't believe that any time we gather that it is not supposed to be a time for us to reflect and to examine not out of fear, not out of shame. But Lord, because we've acknowledged that indeed our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, I know in my own life I've lost my temper this week and I've failed my wife and children. I've been impatient and selfish. I've wanted people to see things my way and do things my way. And Lord, sometimes I've done it right after I've read your word and got up off my knees to pray. Lord, I've yelled at people in other cars who can't hear me because they didn't drive according to my standards. And all of it reminds me of how quickly I can wander from the gospel. And Lord, how I need to cling to your perfection. And so Lord, I know that there are men and women and young people in this room that are starving for truth, searching for truth, walking through hurts and failures, trying to make sense of the gospel. And Lord, help them to understand it's not something deep. It is simply that Jesus Christ is God. And he lived perfectly and died innocently, rose victoriously, reigns almightily and is coming for us. And he loves us just as we are. But Lord, you love us so much, you don't leave us as we are. And so Father, if there be a spirit of confession or repentance, a spirit of on someone's heart or life, that they need to talk to someone, they need to do business with you. Father, may there be a safety and a courageousness in this room that we can be honest and come to you and each other. And we will find healing and rest for our souls. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand.